1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the show, New Books Network, Jose Luis Torres. A great pleasure to have you here. And uh, we will, uh, you were born in Puerto Rico and raised in the South Bronx. And you live at present, I believe, in New York. And you have been teaching American literature and US ethnic literatures at the uh, State University of New York campus. Now, let's talk about your book a little. Your writing comes from a wellspring of insight about the Puerto Rican experience. Tell us a little about yourself, your childhood, and your life thus far.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast, Minnie. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I was, I was born in Puerto Rico. Um, my, my mother came to the U.S. Uh, and took me and my, and my half-brother um, when I was just five years old. And I pretty much grew up in New York City, in the South Bronx specifically, uh, all my formative years, pretty much. And uh, I went to school there; had all my formal uh, education there, from undergraduate all the way to uh, to my doctorate. Uh, I returned to Puerto Rico uh, right after I got my MFA from Columbia University uh, because I wanted to go to Puerto Rico and get some material for my writing. That's basically the reason why. And I ended up staying there for a long period. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think I was going to. I thought I was just going to go return uh, and come back. Uh, my mother had just recently uh, moved there and I wanted to help her also to sort of acclimate to, back to, to the island. And uh, I found a job teaching there and I realized that teaching was really something I wanted to do. So that's what I ended up doing. I ended up uh, teaching, and, and uh, then I got married and at the same time that I was doing my doctorate. Doctrine is something I do not recommend to anyone to get married at the same time that they, they are doing a doctorate. But that's what happened. And so the rest of it was just basically teaching uh, on the areas that you mentioned. But also I've always been a creative writer, so I've always been uh, able to write fictional work and, and poetry and, and get it published.
0: Each of your stories, which in the book uh, Migrations, condenses a bit of the experience of a cross section of Puerto Rico the rich who treat it like a playground, uh, the stereotypical macho men, the shanty town dwellers. And the ramifications of your stories are deep. You touch on topics like climate change and how tourists and travel agents destroy natural ecosystems. You also delve into a bit of history of Puerto Ricans going to boarding school in the United States in the early part of the century. Something like the Indian students in Canada whose mass graves were recently discovered and they're suffering there. And you have put a lot of facts out in the open that are otherwise forgotten by those who think of Puerto Rico as blessed because it's a colony of the United States. Do you see your work as a kind of censure of mainstream America?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. It really is. And and, uh, I think, you know, my writing, is in the same vein as uh, other multi-ethnic writers in the US who we've got a voice, you know, once we got a voice and we're able to to, to publish our work and and actually write, uh, we want to tell our stories and our stories are easily very much in in opposition to the mainstream one, right? Because as most nation states, the US is no different. We're not exceptional uh, really in any particular way uh, in that regard, we bury, the truth, and the truth is that many times the U.S. has done horrific things to its 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 people, and people that they didn't, you know, the mainstream, you know, the, you know, white folks, basically European uh, Americans, uh, didn't even consider people. So, you know, we're a colonized people, and as a colonized people, the U.S., um, you know, we have been suffering under that under that. We're sort of citizens, but we're not. This is, if anything, to also we could probably describe this as a neo-colony because it's a different type of colony uh, invented sort of in the um, late 19th century or the 20th. They give us citizenship 1917, pretty much just to to use our people, our men in particular, to go off to war. That was everything. I mean, that's pretty much established. And uh, sometimes I wonder if uh, some people in the U.S. feel it was a mistake to do that, uh, like our recent. President who actually said, "Can't we take citizenship back from these people?" And, and and he actually wanted to trade us, you know, with with Denmark for Greenland. I mean, this is <laughs> this is the type of attitude. It seems crazy, but you know, there are a lot of people that feel the same way. And so when I write, I write to counter those kinds of narratives uh, to show what has happened with our people in regards to being a colonial, uh, you know, colony of the United States. When you talk about colony to people in the U.S., says, what do you mean colony like like that's an old-fashioned word but it's not you know the United States is an empire like any other empire I mean India knows about colonization uh you know and and one of the things thats always amazed me about that is a country so big and yet it was dominated by by a country smaller and for many many years as you as you know and so we we're a small small nation and and now you know pretty much in, in, Empowered, you know, taken over by such an incredible power that militarily and, and has his own empire. Right? So, uh, yeah, I I think it's essential because I think that history, which is really our history, I'm just presenting our part of our history, and our history um obviously has been connected to the U.S. So whatever has happened to us is a direct you know connection to the U.S. Uh, you know who sent us these these young people to these Indian schools. It was Americans when they took over the island, uh, thinking that they somehow, these are also Indians. <laughs> and I was wondering, when I was use that word, I'm not talking to an Indian, an Indian from India, you know, I always, always wonder how weird that name is for native people of, you know, the, the Americas, right? And we all know why it was always, you know, Columbus just, you know, thought he was in India. And so um, these indigenous uh, folks in, in, in Puerto Rico, we did have, you know, we did have we Taino, Indians, Uh, and they thought that these were another type of Indians. They just sent them to the school to, you know, assimilate them and sort of make them into into civilized, quote unquote, civilized people. So yeah, it's been um, my writing definitely is a censure. I like to call. I think it's a contestatory literature. It's contesting the narrative, and it's also, in many ways, post-colonial. Although I use that word carefully because we're still a colony (laughs) but it's sort of in the post-colonial vein kind of looking back at that relationship and sort of um sort of looking at it critically and, and analytically
0: my next question is about some of the stories in your book a couple of stories in the book are about the puerto ricans of the diaspora who struggle in dysfunctional families who long to be part of the mainstream, but have weathered the subtle racism of American society, and this has taken a toll on their inner lives. Your stories bring alive Puerto Rico to us, its natural beauty and people. Others are based in the South Bronx. Have you tried to de-essentialize Puerto Rico in some way, reveal to us a materialist history, so to speak, and show the colonial economy that the country really is? And like you said in your earlier, uh, uh, what you said earlier as well, was that you want to reveal the true side of Puerto Rico. So could you tell us a little bit in detail about some of these stories and what moved you to write your favorite right. stories
1: in this collection? Yeah. Well, any, anytime that you really are writing contestatory literature, you know, which a lot of multi-ethnic literature is, you're going to just, by writing what you write, you're going to be contesting you know, what happened, and and, in many cases, you also are trying to counter the narratives that have been established by the mainstream writers, right? I mean, I I, I always think of, uh, when when people think about Puerto Ricans, there's so little about us uh, that whatever is out there is is almost always um, racist and and sort of written from a white perspective, right? Like I keep thinking of of, um, West Side Story, (laughs) which was a musical in the U.S., I don't know how, growing up how many times people would be singing that song to me some kind of way, I don't know, awkward way to connect, I don't know, uh, which is, you know, again, in in today's parlance, it's a microaggression, you know. Uh, Why are you singing me this song, which I I personally hate (laughs) and really is, is misrepresenting me in so many different ways. And so, yeah, we have to... I am trying to, to say, okay, these are the stories that were actually written about us. And I'm not a, a big fan of these stories because I think if I unpackage them, they're racist and they're not in any way really realistic to me and, and people like me. So, uh, for instance, uh, there's a story there that it deals with gangs. You know, West Side Story was about gang members, right? Because that's like, it seems like the only thing they can think about us when they think about Puerto Ricans is that we are all in gangs or something like you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there were gangs. All over the city in the 90s, when the story uh, Rip and Wreck and the Collection is written. But there's also other aspects that I'm trying to get at. First of all, this story is not so much a typical gang story, but it's two young people who have gotten out of that lifestyle, out of after the trauma they face. And I'm trying to also give some kind of credence to their perspective of what that was like, because the story is from their eyes, not from some other person who's white looking at. At them saying you're all like sort of savages or animals. These are young people, and who have gotten, um, are, are in many ways, victimized by by a society that that is is has redlined the neighborhood. You know, there's really no money coming into that neighborhood. The, the resources are limited there. The educational system that they're facing is is oppressive, and so they are, are from their perspective, they're surviving and they're trying to, you know, get the American dream and then what happens is the the young son who's gifted this is another thing too right like i wanted to make this character like brilliant i wanted to make him a young man who was really really intelligent because you know what the puerto ricans are quite brilliant and intelligent and but the sad part of it is because the violence around him is still there there's vestiges of of that gang life still in their parents because you don't completely um, get away from it that that creates tension in story and i don't want to tell Uh, the readers can can read for themselves but this is a young a man who you know finds school boring because it doesn't really excite him he's not really doing anything with his his intelligence and his gift so yeah i i I, i'm very much uh, aware of my agenda as it were of as a writer i take pride in that i think that that's why i write um there aren't too many puerto rican fiction writers uh, in the U.S., there are many more poets, great poets, but um, I think there's a there's a void there because I do believe that ultimate narrative is strong. It, it has many qualities that uh, poetic. I am a poet too, um, but I, I I love poetry. But I think telling stories and you can tell stories in poetry too. But 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 you know, real like narrative is strong and trying to get empathy from people and trying to get them to understand. Your position, and when it comes to history, I think history becomes more palpable. It becomes more real to people when it's told in a way that, um, you know, in a fictional way that they can understand it, uh, rather than if they read a cold sort of historical, you know, just sort of account of something. So, I, I think I have answered your question. I hope I have answered. Now you can just um, dig deeper into it, into uh, anything else you might want to include, but. I would say, um, yeah, I I definitely am trying to um, deal with those issues. Mm
0: -hmm. And apart from the marginalized people, you also talk about middle-class Puerto Ricans, some of whom are quite rich and upper class and who come to visit Puerto Rico. And the messier side of Puerto Rican life is also revealed to them and they get a shock as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you're you're probably talking about Nikki who is Puerto Rican. There's, there's also a divide, isn't it, between Puerto Ricans who live in, in, in the States and, and, and the ones that live in the island. And Nikki is a, a completely assimilated a, a Puerto Rican, and, and she doesn't want to go back to that. And it's really her husband who's white, <laughs> who comes in as a tourist, really. They, they're married, and, and um, I think he also, I think a subtle uh, kind of a thing that I'm saying there is also here's a, a guy, a white guy, who has exoticized his wife you know, who happens to Puerto Rican and Caribbean and, and, you know, hot Latina or whatever, you know, there's something, this, a little bit of that. And, um, you know, she does love him. You know, they're, 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 they they're actually love each other, but but there's, there's that element in that relationship. And he, she, she's also old, younger. So it's almost like she's a trophy wife, that kind of thing. And she doesn't want to go back to the island, But he, he loves it because it's like a paradise to him. But then you realize uh, that uh, Puerto Rico is 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 far from being a paradise. I mean, there's a lot of issues and problems. Just as I speak, there's problems right now. The electrical grid is it's just a mess, and Puerto Rico is being run by an American junta, and it's actually called the junta, uh, junta <laughs> which like whoever came up with that name knows absolutely nothing about Latin American history. You just don't use that word in a Latin American context without like having people shudder, you know. And it's a junta, you know, that's running sort of the economic situation in Puerto Rico because, it, it, you know, it just defaulted on, 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 I mean, the debt, it was just it's just a, a real bad situation in Puerto Rico. And, and I left Puerto Rico in about 2000 to come back to the States because as much as I loved the island and, and really wanted to, to make change there, I just, I, could, I couldn't deal with it. It was really a, a mess. And I saw it coming. I saw this, is, this, this economy is going to collapse. So... You know, it's a colony that's not being run well, and the U.S. has this sort of benign neglect attitude towards towards you know Puerto Rico. It doesn't want to give it statehood. It doesn't want to give it independence, and it relies on the indecision of a people, colonized people, to you guys decide what you want to do. As if you they know that right now it's almost impossible. We're an impasse, so they they, they rely on that indecision and inertia to just just keep us where we're at, which is to their benefit. So yeah it's a real you know we're like someone kept saying that this is we're the oldest colony in the world and i i think that might be true and it's just crazy to think in the 21st century you know country um uh, you know first you know first you know developed country has 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 these um these colonies and we're not the only one the virgin islands guam you know uh, Marianne islands there's others also so yeah um i would say that that is uh, that that is the case certainly, yeah. Uh,
0: your book reminded me of another novel as well, Eduardo Lalo Simone. So uh, yes,
1: I'm not familiar. Is he Puerto Rican? No, he's Latino or Latinx.
0: Uh, no, I think he's Puerto. The book is about Puerto Rico.
1: Okay, is he a, a, a island a writer? Does is he?
0: Yes, is... yes, I think. in Spanish and then it's translated. Yeah.
1: And, th- and there's a big difference, too, because a, a lot of, you know, is is what I write Puerto Rican or is it American literature? You know, that's, that's a good question. I myself, you know, I am not going to decide that. But I write exclusively in English and there might be some parts in Spanish. Um, and there's a big a big gap, I think, between, between uh, you know, writers from the island and, and, and people, intellectuals from the island. Sometimes I even look at work like mine or work of U.S., you know. Uh, P- Puerto Ricans in the Diaspora, you know, Diasporican. And there are others who are more more progressively minded who actually think, yeah, that's still part of Puerto Rican literature, but it's written in English. And, you know, a good portion of it. Martín Espada, who is a, a poet that I really love, he writes in English. Uh, Willy Perdomo writes in English. You know, Esmeralda Santiago writes in English. Um, you know, my, my, you know Vega, um Calgo Vega, Uque, who I, I love and I think is, you know, really our, our best to date, our best, novelists you know brought in english so you know uh, are they teaching these schools and and part of the problem too these these, a lot of this work has not been translated into spanish and maybe if they were maybe it would be easier for our folks back in puerto rico to read them but unless they read english uh it's not going to be possible so in what way do you think it's is similar that work our work because now i want to read him because i do read it in spanish i mean Mm -hmm. i just i just
0: it's as, it's as incisive as yours. You know, when you're deconstructing your characters, the exotic trophy, wife, etc. Eduardo Lalo also talks in the same terms about these characters. I mean, there's no romanticism of Puerto Rico. In some of the other writers, one does find one, a kind of romanticism that one loses the social uh, critique completely in those works. But yours and uh, Eduardo Lalo's Hit me quite strongly about Puerto Rico. I mean, one didn't have this impression, like I said, that people around the world think of it as blessed because the U.S. has taken it over, right? So you got to the nitty gritty. <laughs> you pointed yeah, that out.
1: You know, the thing is that, that the empire that they have is now economic in many ways, right? They control, literally control, countries through their economic power, and that that's how they have. They have we don't need to necessarily invade any country. In, in Latin America, our our porch, our backyard, which is so arrogant. But you know, it's um, you know, we just we just pull the levers of the economy and maybe from time to time put a little bit of pressure on them, you know, and we can control them that way. And they, they maintain the hegemony uh, certainly in, in that hemisphere right so i i think I, now you mentioned the name laos i think i might have, have heard of him and you know i have a long wish list of books that I have to read i think i probably have him somewhere in that list now that i think about it because i think he won an award
0: yeah uh, i think the romolo guy if, I, if i'm not mistaken he won an award and in the book there's a discussion as well about with two characters one is a spaniard who's come to puerto rico and he's a visiting writer and uh, the uh, principal protagonist tells him he said you people are not bothered about us spain just has a publishing industry it does not have a literature today right and you know the the anguish of being puerto rican and of being brilliant and of going unnoticed in the us that's that's what the play is.
1: that's another thing right here i am i should be reading his work too but i had this so many so much work from the diaspora writers that i need to write because that's also you know i we you know along with a, a, a co-editor um, we put together the only collection of critical essays on the Puerto, literature of the Puerto Rican diaspora because uh, we found from the, our side that uh, we weren't getting enough you know there's, there's hispanic department hispanic studies departments you know Spanish departments that actually do include Puerto Rican literature from the island but then that leaves us and then the American liter, literary establishment doesn't quite do us uh, understand us so there, there, there is not much work done so, we had to put something together, uh, coming Aidea Rivera, and myself. um, And, you know, it's like a collection of 16 essays that deals with different aspects of the literature of the Puerto Rican diaspora. So, so there's a lot of work still to be done there. How that those two literatures get integrated is, is, is difficult. I, I I understand, but um, because I know I, when I was in the university of Puerto Rico, I actually put together a course on, on the literature from here. And uh, when I went back, you know, to, to do a little book, book tour and I visited Calle, uh, the University of Puerto Rico Calle. Um, you know, I was happy to find out that that course is still there. So they're still teaching it over there. And also the main campus in Puerto Piedras is teaching the literature of the... And Spanish departments here sometimes do teach both, you know, diaspora literature. So, but it's very rare, very rare. So this, 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 there's, a, there's a gap there. There's a certain divide there that uh, comes with being separated right from your homeland Mm
0: -hmm. now most of your stories are written in the realist mode but you also bring in fantasy via protagonists who indulge themselves through the internet and vaping Uh, these are many ways of bringing credence to the narrative and you seem to live vicariously through the characters at times that's just my opinion any thoughts on that
1: yeah, well, I think every every writer will tell you that to a certain point we live <laughs> vicariously by, by our by our characters, and to what extent, uh, what what is the the vicarious, uh, you know, either pleasure or whatever that we get from creating characters that sometimes you know are distasteful to us, or uh, also people we're creating people that are really a terrible people. You know, I don't know what. What you know what is uh, that that pleasure it's maybe just trying to see if not size of ourselves size of other human beings that we find uh, you know uh, fascinating um, we're curious creatures writers, and we like to delve into things. One of my favorite uh sayings uh is from Akira Kurosawa who's a, a Japanese filmmaker and it's uh something like you know to be an artist means to never avoid your gaze, right? Or to avert your eyes, to avert your eyes. Meaning, look at it, because look at things, even as ugly as they might be, because to be your artist, it means to deal with that. If, if it's something that you see and you, it haunts you in some way, then then you maybe should write about it uh, or or create something, you know, in his case, films. And so my stories sometimes are not, I mean, if, if you come to, to to my fictional world looking for escape, I'm not going to give it to you. Although the fantasy you talk about is is a is a form of escape, right? If you're talking about in world, which is this young this older guy, uh, actually middle middle age who who's lost his wife, and he now is alone. But the difference here, this is a story that has been told so many times, right? Here's a widower. Okay, so what happens? But he's also Puerto Rican, as many of my characters are, and he's now um, someone who has completely broken off from his culture. For various reasons. You know, his family seems to be crazy <laughs> from his perspective. And he went a uh, uh, he always had a separation from them and from the whole Puerto Rican thing, right? And now he finds himself alone, uh in in a in a country, in a part of the country that's really very white. And now he uh must deal with his grief at the same time that he is alone, right? So he ends up entering this sort of uh and this must be in the near future, right, where I don't think this kind of technology, which can almost immerse yourself in this sort of um, uh, virtual world. And he begins to submerge himself in that world to the point that he loses all reality. And it, it, it's sort of like what uh, I think was Bernard Lauer who said, you know, well, I keep thinking of certain things. One, the movie um, Blade Running, uh, Blade Runner. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, uh, which takes care in the, in the future. And this is it's sort of a world where they have these um, uh, androids that are more real than real, right? So here, what I'm, I'm dealing with is this idea of hyperreality, right? That sometimes what is simulated, uh, the simulacra, is much more real to people than the real life that they live, and that's also uh, pointing to the dangers of this of this kind of thing, right? I think people really do ex- escape any way they can. From, from from the from the, the pains and anguish of a of, of real a real life and then to go into a virtual reality where everything they do to a certain point is controlled and they can be whoever they want is dangerous and to deal with your dislocation from your culture and your people is a dangerous thing to me it really is and you see that also in the doctor in the operation right because because he he really has has never been connected to his Jewish you know, uh, he's not really Jewish by, by Jewish law and culture because his mother wasn't Jewish, but he doesn't really, his father, who was, did not really teach him about that. And then when he goes to Puerto Rico and they're performing all these operations, really horrific, sterilizing women, he's part of that. He doesn't realize, he doesn't even connect anything of his own, you know, history as, a, as his people anyway, or part of his people. And so I think uh, once you dislocate from yourself and your culture, you're, you're, you're in a danger zone. That particular character, Melvin, is, it happens, that happens to him. So I don't, you know, I don't find Vicarious pleasure in writing about that character. But I, 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 what I'm looking at is a horror to me, you know, that what, this is what happens, you know, when you're, you just get so lost and you, you end up being submerged in this world, this fantasy, and it's not a good thing and uh, uh the vaping part of it is um by the way there's connections to these characters sometimes uh the 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 next story which i think is runway runaway uh, is about a model in the near future too when there's climate change has really taken an impact which it will eventually unless the world get, wakes up in the u.s in particular who's the biggest polluter in the world uh, we don't do something about it. You know, some of the things that are happening in that story are going to happen. Puerto Rico, who knows, is going to be really submerged in water. I mean, I, I, it's very possible. The, the, the oceans are rising. We know that. And um, so in that story, she's living in that time period when being a little bit, you know, a little heavier is actually the model type. <laughs> because uh, women who are who are famished, because the food supply is not really, you know, um, you know, as what it was. And, um, you can see how that could happen, right? Because you will always in the U S in capitalism, find a way to make money out of the the worst situations. So if now women wish they were a little heavier because they're starving, a woman who happens to be curvy as a, a, you know, maybe Puerto Rican women are just, you know, they happen to be a little curvier. It's true. I think, you know, and so, um, so that becomes the model type and they're forcing her to eat more. (laughs) They don't want her to lose weight. And she's living in this world in Puerto Rico. She goes to Puerto Rico, just like you said, Puerto Rico to her still is this like paradise. Like the world is literally crumbling apart, falling apart. And she escapes to Puerto Rico as some kind of fantasy. Right. Um, But doesn't notice the rising water in the airport where they have to get the bags in a, in a motorboat, you know, (laughs) She doesn't, you know, and then on top of that, she's already trying to escape, and then she tries to escape by vaping and using hallucinatory drugs, and so that to me is the state of a lot of Puerto Ricans today, metaphorically. I mean, they're they're just so clueless to our situation and resigned to just staying the way we are and not doing anything about it that it's it's almost like uh, loopy in that in that story. So yeah. Um, I don't know, again, to to go back to your original question. I I just feel like I I try to enter situations that sometimes do make me feel uncomfortable, but I want to because I feel, I think as a writer, I should should do that. And it just seemed to me like a good story, you know, both of those. And I said, um, let me just go with it. And I know they might be controversial, but that's okay. I mean, I think, you know, again, I'm not a writer that tries to, uh, and this is (laughs) probably I don't have a big readership. I just feel as in some of the stories, do Do, do people read them and they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not comfortable. And uh, I'm not going to apologize to make you uncomfortable. Maybe in the, on the discomfort, maybe you should think about why you feel uncomfortable. And it, Or this is the story with the man gets transitioned, right? You mentioned um, early on, uh, this is a typical sucio, uh, you know, using, again, going back to the, idea that I like to tackle these these stereotypical Latin characters, Latinx characters, you know and that's one of them created even by and you know one of our you know Latinx writers, Juno Diaz, which I've had problems. I have problems with, with some of his writers. I mean, do, like you keep writing about this type of man. And I, I feel that that's just it's true to a certain point, but not every guy's like that. And every book you write is about these guys. So I, I just kind of took that and, and ran with it as a parody. almost was making fun of it, and then it got it gets more serious. The story that's a perfect example. Many of how I start and when I started out, I, I I thought humor would be the way to do it, and then it was it was really horrible. Actually, I'm glad I never published that because I realized that as I looked into more research into transgen- you know transgender people and transition people, it's nothing to laugh about. So it had to become a serious story, and then I was like, "Can I write this story?" You know what I mean? Can I, you know, can I write this story? And I think I did a lot of research. I really tried to do it from a position of empathy and understanding to create a a guy that was accidentally right. This this is not a person that is transgender that says I I want to do this. I mean, he wanted to sort of change his ways as a machista guy, right? So, um, you know, somebody tells him, if you go to this, you get therapy and a little bit of, you know, a little bit of medicine to kind of help you. I don't know what that medicine would be. Cause there are, there are drugs to kind of make desexualize you a little bit. You know, I guess he thinks he's too much of a sexual creature <laughs> that he needs help, right? He can't do it by his own self. He needs something. So he goes to this clinic. that's an underground, very kind of <laughs> underground clinic and they make a mistake. So now he's, you know, he is a woman, you know, physically, you know, but not really. So uh, I, it's, it's one of those great what if, what if that happened, you know, that then I, I went with it. So that question is interesting about the vicarious. I think, again, getting back to my your question, we all, you know, writers, I think, do kind of uh, like to play with different types of characters, even villains. Right. I think there is a pleasure by writing a villain that, you know, you're not like that person. But but I mean, uh, if you could be, sometimes villains, uh, you know, get away with stuff or they do things that maybe you wouldn't dare do, but they do. So there's something to that. I think it's part of the creative process and using your imagination. That's a long, long response, but it was such a fascinating question.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, your story, that was most effective, the one about El Sucio and the castration, etc. Because it brought out the stereotypical idea of the macho man and the rest of it. And the other thing you're also fascinated with is getting into the minds of these rich people, rich Puerto Ricans who come to Puerto Rico. That was what I felt. What exactly are they thinking? What do they see? How? What do they look at Puerto Rico like? And most of the time, they are as ingenuous as any white North American who has never suffered, deracinated completely.
1: Right. Because so even Nikki, I think at a certain point, and, and that's me also working with my own my own uh, conflicts. You know, as a as a as someone who comes from a working class background to becoming bourgeois, because you know you cannot go through the higher educational system in the US without becoming middle class. I mean that's the whole point, right? You go to college to become middle class, whatever your roots are. You know, you go to college, you get educated, you know, you're professional, now you're middle class. And, you know, so I, I of course I have bourgeois tendencies. And I, I you have to be metacritical about these things, right? To a certain point. But I always think that I like to think and continue to think about my working class roots. You know, my mother worked in a factory. her whole life she was in strip shots. My my my, my stepfather Lost his fingers working, you know, as a superintendent of a of a you know high-rise building in Manhattan, cleaning snow, and, and he made the mistake of trying to clean the snow from this thing, and he cut you know some of his fingers, and you know, um, so it's it's you know that that is not easily erased from my from my memory in my history. So I try to, and, and I do, I try to, when I write something about a middle-class person, I am looking at myself and even questioning me myself, right? Because sometimes it's very easy to go, well, that's not my problem, but it is, you know, uh, it's all our problems. And, and so Nikki is a good example. I said she goes to this resort to try to sell her husband's, you know, uh, um, you know, 52, uh, Cadillac, and, and I have had people ask me, "Well, what, what's that with the Cadillac? This is always on the cover, right? It's on the cover." And um, I, I, I say, "Well, the '52 '52 was the year that the Commonwealth government came into power. the Estado Libre asociado That's my symbol, right? That car, and for the and started the story with that. She's trying to sell this because it's already old <laughs> and it's sort of decrepit, but she thinks it's wonderful. She thinks it's you know." This is an old car. It should be able to, you know, get a lot of money, right? And nobody really wants it. No, nobody wants to buy from her, uh, except that woman that might have had an affair with her husband. And so, uh, you know, I, I I I'd like to think that um, I'm always looking at those those kinds of issues, really, uh, about that. And, you know, rich people, rich Puerto Ricans. In fact, I've had an idea to write a collection completely about middle class Puerto Ricans. You know, uh, whether they be in Puerto Rico or they are in in the states. And the states, I think is more interesting because um, Rosario Ferrel, uh who I'm sure you you're probably aware of, uh, she's a Puerto Rican writer writing. I think she writes both actually. She she used to write. She's she's, she's passed, but she's she's written enough about because she comes from a wealthy Puerto Rican family, and uh, that I allude to by the way in in mint Condition. Um, and it's very possible that that woman that had the affair is it, sort of like a, somebody in the Ferrer family. But, um, you know, she, she's written about the upper class in Puerto Rico, which I call the elite colonial class. They're the status quo. They're the ones that really run the, the colonial government and, and, and nation or state or whatever it is, you know, neocolony. And so they've made wealth still. And um, they have their own different ideas about what's going on, obviously, and they don't take any responsibility. I mean, if you look at it, if you look at her situation from a from a critical Marxist perspective, their class failed to become, to make the nation state, right? They have failed. And now they have resigned themselves to this colonial situation because it's the only way they can, can keep some power. So um, to the detriment of the rest of, of Puerto Rico. So that's an interesting study of those people and, and also, you know, the Diasporicans who have made, you know, done better, people like me, you know, who, who are now middle class and, and upper upper middle class. What about them? What's our state of mind? What's what, what's life different? Galdo Vega, by the way, Junke also wrote about them. Um, so there was already a, a territory there to start writing about that. And I think it will come with, uh, with the mere fact that we just are entering into middle class.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of churning then in the literary world in Puerto Rico, right? Uh, you know, churning, you know,
1: uh, uh, mixing. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because you know we're we're as mixed as we can get <laughs> from everything. We're we're mixed, you know, racially. I mean, we're you know we're Caribbean people, and and Car- the Caribbean has always been about you know sort of uh, mixture and melding and and you know. And, um, and then we were a lot of us are writing in a post-colonial world in uh, postmodernist world where you know mixing genres is is the thing right so I enjoyed that a lot actually I really do enjoy it and I, and I do use that a lot in this collection there's a lot of that I I feel
0: in the sense what I meant this churning was also the for example in the world Republic of letters you know now you don't have to be an elite person uh, to be a writer you don't have to have read a series of uh, classics to become a writer and to...
1: yeah oh absolutely absolutely and so i think some of the best literature is coming out from people who have never got an mfa personally and you know because that's, that's the thing now right it's an mfa factory out there and it's just you know you, you turn out that mfa and then you get your first book and again it's whatever and there's people who are actually writing from a position and maybe that's why they're more fascinating because um, like everything else, the MFA factory keeps producing similar, you know, similar poetry, similar stuff, you know? So, so um, uh, I, I think that that people who come from working class backgrounds who come, you know, who never even went to college are writing, uh, writing excellent, authentic, raw stuff that, that, that does what I think primarily literature should do is move you in some way. You know, really make you feel something, and, and they do that. I would agree. Yeah.
0: Now you've written a novel, then poetry, then short stories. Uh, what's your next
1: project? Yeah, I'm. I'm. In fact, the um, one of the stories in migrations in this collection uh, is about Roberto Clemente. It's called Clemente Burning, and that is the beginning of my next project. You know, I wanted to include it in here for various reasons. One, I wanted to include another story in there, and I thought it could stand on its own. You know, in the first part, and also, um, you know, if it got published, people will go, "Oh, this is interesting," and I can follow through with the novella coming, coming. So I'm hoping to finish it by next year. And it's about him, but it's not just about. And I don't know if you, I mean, or maybe some of you listeners, Roberto Clemente is a, a sort of an icon, a baseball icon. Baseball is supposedly a number one sport, but I think football is, but um, he is well known. He was a hall of fame uh, baseball player, but he was also Afro Puerto Rican. And so I want to really delve into race and racism, you know, from a Caribbean Puerto Rican perspective and kind of uh, many times I always say that I write to answer questions for myself and I want to really really put race and, and blackness in, in in the center of of this query now right? you know like what's going on with us with race because we're we're mixed people but you know there's a lot of racism in Puerto Rico still you know and so we have a caste system to a certain point you know and and you know closer to the whiteness the better for you you know and that's almost necessary uh, because, you know, everybody's mixed, right? So people feel like, well, it's not enough to just have one drop of, of African ancestry because a lot of us have a lot or more than others, you know? So now it's a question how close you are to that white ideal, that racist white ideal. And I, wanna, I, I think he's a good example because he's well known. He was definitely an Afro-Puerto Rican. And he also was dealing with that issue because he always saw himself as Puerto Rican. Because the only model that he had was this black white paradigm that was that he confronted in the u s either you're black meaning i African American or you're white, and he just didn't see himself that way because he was he grew up in a Caribbean environment that dealt with race in a different way. so I want to explore that and um you know he, he's really at this point in the book early on he's he's dead. this is after he has that tragic accident when he's taking. Help humanitarian aid to Nicaragua for that earthquake in Managua in 1972. I want to say, yeah, 1972. Because next year is going to be 50 years, and his plane crashed, and lost a great person, a great human being, a fantastic ball player, you know, Puerto Rican idol. And so, what better figure than Roberto Clemente to to you know to kind of go on this journey with me? To try to figure out race in Puerto Rico.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating project. Uh, We've had books also cast by Isabel Wilkerson. You know, I think cast is a good way of describing this whole stratification because it's so apt. And she, yeah, and in your stories as well, you hinted that that it uh, this um, this closeness to the ideal of whiteness. Which everyone strives for to be white, to mantener la raza, to
1: maintain, right. <laughs> maintain oh my God! Cost. Yeah, yeah, you got, yeah! You really, you know, your stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's true. I mean, you know, people really have told that to people, in, you know, in, in in Puerto Rico, you know, wow, it's uh, no, it's mantener, yeah. mejorar, mejorar, which is in, in improve the race. I mean, it's like improve because we're not good enough. You know, you need to get that whiteness to get better. It's it's shocking, you know. So you that, get that's married culture. to the
0: right person, right? We understand it's, that very well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she, which is really interesting too, because you know, if you look at Clemente, and his wife was a little lighter skinned than him, you know, and so it's it's always a little bit of that, you know, um, and and we have to we have to just just dismantle that that whole that whole thing. It's just, it's awful, yeah.
0: Now, uh, what's been the reception like of your work?
1: Well, I'm mean, gonna honestly, it's not much reception. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, with you. I mean, I, I just it over here. Publishing is, you know, for instance, I know India has really had a, a, an explosion, a, a wonderful explosion, really. I think, and I think it's because India really has a book literary culture. In Puerto Rico, we we you know we came into literacy just late in the 20th century, you know, and also um, we went right in from 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 you know in the 20th century right into television, you know. And and all that it, it was like we couldn't really had the time to to grow uh, a literary uh, kind of world. Certainly, there was the elite that had that, but in terms of the masses, no, not so much. We don't have that many bookstores in Puerto Rico to this day. And in the Bronx, where there's a lot of Puerto Ricans, we got one bookstore in the Bronx, New York, one bookstore. <laughs> it's insane. So, I you know, my people, I don't know if they're reading my book. I, I really honestly and and. Um, people have told me, oh, you know, I've read your book, it's great, but, you know, I'm not I'm not getting any reviews. Uh, in fact, I don't think there's been one review. The only person has reviewed my book just to give me an endorsement was uh, Ixta Murray, who's a fantastic Chicano writer and I really appreciate it. And the person who judged my book, you know, Luis Alberto Urrea is, but both of those people are Mexican-Americans, you know, right? Like, I don't know where my Puerto Rican brethren are. I mean, I, I really don't. And because uh, I also have send the book to people and uh they have it they got the collection they haven't given me any feedback so i don't really know so still um, thinking about
0: it i think they're still thinking about it and wondering what to say because like i told you the book impacted me quite a bit as well it revealed a lot of truths but maybe you know because for them it's so close to home so i understand how they might feel
1: yeah yeah and you know especially with my my uh uh, you know, colleagues in, in the in the academy, I think they they obviously must ponder it cri- critically in, in a very different way than somebody just reviewing it. And you know, so and and uh, you know, I've got a couple of Goodreads uh, reviews, and you know, I, I try not to look at Goodreads because I think some of those people just don't. I don't know they don't know where I'm coming from, and uh, I think there is a, a gap in what they say. Tells me I don't think you read this. I mean, in the right light or something. They just don't, you know, they just don't get it. So, you know, you can't go by that either. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see. It's been three months. Uh, Certainly, this is not a book that was published by a big publisher. Uh, LARB Books does not have a big budget. They have a wonderful, uh, you know, publicist who's getting me these podcasts. And I, I, to their credit, um, I think I have more of an online presence I've ever had in my life, my career. That's great that they're doing that, but it's harder to get reviews. Generally, really, quite frankly, generally, I think the review, the book review in the United States, now it's almost dead. It's very difficult unless you have really super good uh, agent that has incredible connections that can go directly to the person in the New York Times, read this, you know, and then your (laughs) your client is Colson Whitehead, you know? (laughs) Who is going to turn down writing a review about Colson Whitehead? Because I would take that. I would take that in a heartbeat. Because you know your name is going to be automatically just by by critiquing it Because people are going to read it. So it's a, you know it's very commercialized. It's a it's a different tiered, economically tiered uh, mm-hmm. publishing world. And um, honestly, I don't write to make money. Never. I mean, after a while, I said, "This I'm not going to make money from this." And I'm retired. I just want to write honest books. I want to write stories that I feel, you know, set a record too, right? Because maybe even if I'm gone, there's uh, always interesting how sometimes future generations get intrigued and f- follow a thread of researching, you know, find a book. Uh, That's happened even in Chicano literature, you know, with um, uh, with the Don and the, and the Squatter, uh, you know, uh, Maria de Burton, right? uh who was unknown and now that book is in a norton anthology of literature so you want to write a record and just write because you feel you have to write there's an urgency there and down the line maybe other people will read it and pick it up and go wow this guy was writing about this stuff and that's all i can hope for right now i mean yeah.
0: well it's been fascinating talking to you Jose Luis and uh, i hope you're your books are very successful I for one will definitely teach some of your stories in my class because they've read Eduardo Lalo so they can relate I think also readers of Latin American literature would relate better to your stories they would maybe the rest of Latin America they'd, uh, your book will work if it's translated yeah. into
1: Spanish we yeah. have the yeah there I well. wish I could and I'm not you know I'm fluent with that but I'm not you know I'm not first of all, I, to, trying to translate my own work into Spanish, I just, I couldn't, if I can just find a good translator, I would I would do it, if I could even pay for it, I would do it because I think it would get a better Oh, but you're right I think that it's more like, because you know you mentioned Latin America, you know I, I, I majored in, in, in college, one of my majors was was Hispanic studies, and I gravitated immediately to Latin American literature, I just fell in love with American literature, and I think there's some influences still, Borges was... <laughs> me a great master of the short story uh the the boom because i came up i grew up with the boom that you know the the latin latin american boom and all those writers were Cortázar. i mean they were fabulous writers and i still love them fuentes and i i and they influenced me a lot so i think yeah you're right probably i still kind of write more towards that and then uh, american
0: okay thank you very much Jose Luis. thank you so much for talking to us and telling us about your book
1: thank you i hope that 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 uh, your listeners uh, enjoy it and uh, thank you again for for inviting me it was a pleasurable conversation the most intellectual one i've had frankly uh, which <laughs> thank i appreciate you much. yeah and i hope your students if you do assign it to them you know and they just tell them if they if they want to in any way contact me uh you know i don't know if you have my email if you want but get send it to them and I, i'm online Uh, And I would love to hear what they have to say. I really would appreciate, uh, especially somewhere from some other part of the world, uh, you know, letting me know what they think. Thank you very much.